want to tend to everybody, but I also have to be able to recognize that I'm not the right teacher for everybody. And I have to be able to, you know, create a network and be able to know when to step back. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast designed to explore the intersection between mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm speaking with Shelly Tajelski. Shelly is a mindfulness-based stress reduction teacher, and she's also deeply involved in offering trauma-informed mindfulness programs to communities who've been affected by gun violence and mass shootings here in the U.S. I first met Shelly last summer, and I was really moved to hear her talk about the work she's been doing around mindfulness, trauma, and community organizing in her home state of Florida. Last year, she partnered with Sharon Salzberg and John Kabat-Zinn to offer a retreat in Parkland, Florida, for people impacted by a mass shooting that happened there in February 2018. These were families, first responders, students and teachers, and other community members who came together to do some really powerful healing work. In this episode, we talk about that work, what Shelley's learned, how it's going, and the courage of so many people inside of the communities that we'll be talking about. Just a note that some of the content in this conversation does touch on the events that took place in Parkland, which is stirring, um, and rightfully so. So with that in mind, and appreciation for this very real conversation, I bring you Shelley Tajelski. Shelly, thanks for being here. I've been really excited for this conversation and to get to have some time chatting with you and with this uh, podcast. I'm I'm talking to people really who are doing work at the intersection of mindfulness and trauma, which is very broad uh, in some ways. But I've been recently starting to open with this question of just is there any particular moments in your life or memories or parts of your practice or in your teaching that caused you to be interested in this topic? Uh, because I see you as someone who's working at this intersection of mindfulness and trauma. And I'm like, what, what got you here? What has you interested mm-hmm. in it? And, and how did we get to this conversation, you and me? Well, thank you, first of all, for having me. I really appreciate being here. And I admire your work greatly and oh, the thanks. way that you are just bringing to light the importance of trauma-informed practices in this space. I think it's a really interesting question that you asked this. And what I'll do is I will borrow from a Hollywood movie script. And I think I need to start in present (laughs) time and sort of work backwards. Yeah, it sounds perfect. I think more recently, the trauma that I've experienced that I think a lot of people probably listening to this podcast will be able to relate to started with the day after the election in 2016. I remember waking up in the morning and feeling very similar to times in my life when somebody like had passed away or died. You know, I just felt an immense amount of grief, um, an immense amount of fear I was tapping into, into this like unknown, like what kind of a world are we going to be entering into? Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of, I tapped into that in a very curious way because of the tools and practices that I've you know amassed over the last two decades. So I had the ability to sort of look at things in a, in I think a different light than maybe uh, many people 
And what happened was, is that as I became more empowered and part of a larger movement, I started to see people around me um, experiencing a lot of uh, activism fatigue and burnout. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, So Mm -hmm. when you think about what happened with the Women's March and all the movements that started sort of growing in early January onward, and you then started to kind of see this petering off, this fizzling out. And you wondered well, what happened to everybody, you know, where, where are all these millions of people that were marching in the street? Like, where, where are they now? And I started getting really interested in speaking to um, women who, specifically women who were like at this intersection of um, trying to tend to the traumas and the concerns and just their basic daily needs that they have, right, in their own, in their own lives. Mm-hmm. But then also still try to contribute in some way on a greater level to making sure that they can help dismantle some of the systems that are in place that have been keeping them down or traumatizing them for years. So that that was kind of one seed, if you will, that was planted with me. And then and then, you know, not soon thereafter. Um, after the one-year anniversary of the Women's March, um, a month later, the shooting at Parkland happened. As a mother of a, of a high school student, my son doesn't go to Marjory Stone and Douglas High School, but he goes to a school a few miles away and knows many students who go there. The amount of shock that just rushed through my system as a parent, as a mother, as a, an organizer, and then as a mindfulness teacher just really, it was too much. It was overwhelming. And I, I had to wear many different hats, you know, um, in that moment, I wanted to certainly tend to, to my son and make sure that he was okay. But I recognized that a lot of parents couldn't tend to their children. Um, after that day. And I immediately within the first 24 hours got involved um, with the March for Our Lives movement and saw the same patterns that I had seen with the Women's March movement, um, that activism, fatigue, burnout, just deferring our, our own healing. And it was really important for me to to try to become a pillar for people um, and to provide access for individuals who just didn't even know that they have the capacity to obtain and empower themselves with with a variety of tools, portable tools, tools that are easy to access, you know, mm-hmm. at any time. So I found myself immersed in these spaces and it wasn't really intentional, you know, it wasn't something that I said, ah, I must do something. This I was just like in a certain place at a certain time. Yeah. yeah but yeah. I started to curiously think about, you know, why do I feel comfortable in the fire? Why do I feel comfortable when so many people, I think, and I see people kind of running the other way? And if you really do think about it as a movie script, you know, you 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 can there's always like those characters in a film where 
the apocalypse is happening. There's a meteor coming. There's some big alien spaceship that's coming down. And like 99% of people are just absolutely running in the other direction. And I just found myself like standing there and making a conscious decision to run towards what was happening Mm. and to just be a responder as opposed to reactor, which I think is like a big part of our training. Those are, I think, the three sort of intersections as to, you know, why I'm here and I think why I'm comfortable in this space. I mean, I love to talk about all of them and especially what you said about the choice that you are making around um, really moving towards difficulty and then the tools that you bring in and all the, just the, all the different intersections that you're working with and histories. And, and there are some folks, I'm wondering if we could uh, spend some time with Parkland for a moment. There will be some people that, I mean, many listeners who are in the U S that have some context, but there's others who are listening who, who don't know about Parkland or um, the March for our lives. I'm wondering if you could just spend a moment just providing um, a little bit of context about what happened and then this this movement that you're naming around March for Our Lives, which you've been involved in, mm. um, which I think is, it'd be awesome to just lift that up and get an update on how you're thinking about it these days. Sure. So on, uh, on February 14th of 2018, um, it was Valentine's Day, like every other year here in the United States, uh, which is a day of love and uh, an opportunity for everybody to express their their just admiration for each other. So the atmosphere in general, and certainly in in high schools around the country, um, was was a little bit more festive than on a regular day. And so there was a, a shooter who. Um, in our community, uh, we don't actually name the shooters. We name the survivors because we don't want um, for him to have notoriety. Mm-hmm. But there was a shooter who used to be a student, a former student who was a really troubled teen, unfortunately also had access to guns. And he um, entered uh, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School, specifically the 1200 building, armed with just, you know, AR-15s and a ton of an arsenal of weapons and just started to spray bullets into, into different classrooms. And 17 lives were taken that day of students, three staff members who um, tried to protect their students mm. and really gave their lives in a heroic manner. And there were also 17 students who were injured severely, who had to have uh, many surgeries, and um, really, you know, they're they're incredible human beings who are just a testament to resilience and survival. But beyond that, you know, we talk a lot about the 17 lives that were um, taken that day and the 17 that were injured, but. What I will tell you is that every single person that was in that building, every person that was in that school and people beyond that in the community were also changed and they were traumatized that day. Yeah. And they they were fractured in some way. What happened after that day was that a lot of the students 
feeling enraged, of course, feeling powerless, decided to take their power back. And so Marjorie Stoneman Douglas being in in a suburb of an affluent suburb, actually, it's a great school. You know, it's an A-rated school in our district. And we have, there's an award-winning debate team and all these really great clubs that give an opportunity for these students to just rise and, and to explore and to create. And they came together and decided to build a platform for themselves because they were so outraged that something like this, which was really, really preventable in so many ways, you know, and the government, the school system, the school board, teachers, administrators, this country just failed them. You know, we're supposed to protect our kids and we basically failed them in every way. Um, and the students decided to take their power back and they started a movement called March for Our Lives, um, which really became an international movement. It's, and the idea was to just march through the streets of Washington, um, which they did on March 24th. And it was the largest um, march really in modern history. Um, and there were students from all over the world that were marching in different cities around the country and around the world. And I, it's interesting because I saw also through that experience, and my son was really involved in that experience as well. And he went to Washington and he was involved with the, the Gabby Giffords Foundation as a fellow. And he, he started to see also his friends like fizzling out because, you know, when you throw yourself into this work of activism and into um, planning and um, and doing, it's great, right? But what happens is is that it's 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 finite. Like there's there's a start, there's an end to it in a sense. You know, the march happened, and then after the march, not that our, the work wasn't done. Certainly, there was more work to do. March for Our Lives is still an existing organization, but what happened was is that the students started to fizzle out because they weren't really mm-hmm. dealing with their own traumas. They weren't mm-hmm. um, tending to themselves. Um, and while they were able to form incredible connections with each other, you know, graduation was coming up for a lot of them, uh, senior year. A lot of them were seniors. A lot of the, the ones that were like on the cover of Time Magazine, you know, people like David and Emma, um, they graduated. And so all of a sudden that community sort of became dismantled because many of them were going to college in the fall. And so they, they had to sort of take a step back, many of them, and just start the journey inward so that they could then continue to do the work in the world that they wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I appreciate you just taking a moment to uh, so that down provides some context. And I know just hearing you talk about it, it makes me reflect on the ways that over the last, I mean, I moved down to the U.S., in 2007 and i feel like the incidence of shootings mass shootings and also inside of schools has just been it seems like every year there's a number of events and i can feel the way that i've gotten kind of numb to it over years and even just you taking a moment to slow down uh what happened i appreciate that and the um offering some context and then and then what you're saying here about the potential burnout around trauma and how people work with it. And it seems like this is where you've focused a lot of your 
attention and energy around mindfulness practices and supporting families, communities, the students. It's so moving to me that you also, you know, your son who's in the community um, and bringing kind of the tale of your own history around mindfulness into communities. And I'm wondering if you could talk about how inside of either Movement for Our Lives or I know there's been some retreats that you've been offering to families, but this this particular intersection sure. around communities affected by gun violence and then the mindfulness uh, background that you have, how, what are you learning and, and what are you seeing? Yeah. So, you know, after I put my hat on as a mother and as an activist, a community organizer, I um, began to um, see myself more as a uh, kind of a mindful first responder, if you will. Um, Mm -hmm. and wear that hat. Um, and I realized and recognized that, um, many of the people that I was working with, both, um, in the movement, um, the activist movement of March for Our Lives and also, um, in other movements, you know, whether it was Women's March or any, anybody that was really just affected by, by what happened, which was completely shocking, people started to gravitate towards our community that we, that I had developed starting in 2015, um, in Hollywood beach, Florida, and coming to our guided meditation uh, sessions and asking about whether I could teach a workshop or if I could, um, offer them, you know, just some of my time and give them some tools and tips and something that some resources that they could use. And I recognized that there needed to be some sort of like a formalization of all of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also understood, um, that I am one human being Um, and that, you know, there's only so much that, that I can do. Right. Um, so it was really important for me to seek out other individuals within our community, um, and beyond that, uh, were able to do this work and who are, you know, certified mindfulness teachers that have experience with trauma and with people experiencing trauma. Yeah. And what I found was that there weren't a ton of individuals that were in this space, in this community that, that actually had that experience. So I reached out to, to my teacher. I reached out to Sharon Salzberg, who I've known for, um, since grad school, actually, when I was a student at Columbia university and I used to take classes with her at Tibet house. And she offered to, uh, to come down do a half day retreat. And the retreat was about six months after the shooting. And the truth of the matter is, is that neither she or I knew who would show up. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, cause you just never know, you know? Right. Totally. <laughs> cause it was free and it was open to the public and it was in Parkland. So we really had no idea. And we were just, I think, really surprised that we had, you know, something like 400 people sign up. Oh, wow. And, you know, about 350 or so, 300 people showed up. And it was in a 
just a ballroom of like a hotel basically that's um, very close to to the high school mm-hmm. and we had just a ton of community members but we also had teachers and students and parents and what happened was that after the retreat ended um a few of the parents and students stayed behind and we just you know, spent some time with them having uh, just a conversation about, well, how was that for you? And, and there's a, you know, a lot of incredible comments that came from it, but the one that stood out really the most was from one of the teachers who said that the retreat gave her permission to heal. That was just incredibly impactful because mm, mm-hmm. we were just blown away by that. Really, we were because we we just were like, you know, here are individuals who for six months have been in this like fog and didn't understand or feel that they had the permission to hold things in duality and be able to understand that they went through this horrible, really traumatic experience but that there is a possibility for them to emerge and still also on the other hand, be able to hold joy once again Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. at the same time, you know, and not at the expense of. And so that was just really powerful, I think for both myself and Sharon. And there was one, one of the parents then said after, after the teacher said that he said, where can I get more of this? Mm Mm-hmm. And we said, well, you know, there's retreats, there's workshops, there's this. And he said, no, 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 like this is, you don't understand. This is the first time in six months. And even though it was like a fleeting moment that I was able to find a moment of peace and I need more of that. I need to figure out how to tap into that. So that's when Sharon and I started talking about uh, putting together um, a retreat in Barrie. And she generously offered um, the use of uh, the the Buddhist Center, the Barry Center for Buddhist uh, Studies, which is a facility located right next to um, IMS and the Insight Meditation Society. Yes, is that? yep, yeah, and and uh, and it was it's so amazing how the universe just <laughs> you know kind of works because I think you know this, David. Like you, you can't just like call insight meditation or call garrison or omega and say hey can i book a retreat in six months from now usually they're like booked out a year or two years in advance you know Mm -hmm. um but lo and behold uh there had been a cancellation (laughs) and there was an opening in august for us to do a takeover of the facility and it was incredible and what i'll tell you is that the original concept for the retreat when Sharon and I talked was that it was only supposed to be a retreat for people from Parkland. But between when Sharon taught in October of 2016, I mean, I'm sorry, 2018 to the retreat, which happened in August uh, of 2019, really incredible things started to happen in that the Parkland community started to reach out to communities like Pittsburgh after their mass shooting happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue to offer words of comfort and support and healing and to create connections. 
And so the survivor network has been strengthening and forming and it's unfortunate because look, nobody ever wants to be, this is the club that nobody wants to be a part of. You never want to be part of this club. But once you're a part of this club, the only other people that could ever understand what you're going through are people who have been through this type of trauma. Mm -hmm. So we wound up actually opening the retreat up to any community that has been affected by, um, by mass shootings and by chronic gun violence. And so the retreat wound up um, having communities, uh, I'm sorry, over a dozen communities were represented at the retreat. People from Chicago, from South side of Chicago to the Las Vegas mass shooting community, Aurora, Los Angeles, you know, the Sherman Oaks community to Pittsburgh Parkland, the Waffle House shooting in Nashville, Baltimore. It just, I mean, it's incredible. It's really incredibly sad, actually, you know, that there are that many communities, but we wound up having this space, this safe space that was created, this cocoon where people from all over the country who had different backgrounds, different upbringings, different, you know, daily lives, socioeconomic status, you name it, different religions. And they all came together in this incredible cocoon, this safe space. And for four days, they were able to all take their masks off. And they didn't ever have to explain themselves or what they were feeling, or what they were going through. And they could just be who they were and cry when they wanted to cry and laugh if they wanted to laugh and share if they did, wanted to share or not share if they didn't want to share. And they just were in this incredibly warm and safe place, far away from everything else. And I think for many of them, it gave them like four days of of unplugging in a very different way. They didn't have to like feel like they had to put a mask on and face the world or tend to their daily lives or try to tend to other people or worry about, you know, um, people coming up to them and saying the wrong thing or, or sharing their trauma and traumatizing someone else. And that was incredibly just a, a beautiful thing that came out of it. And what, what ultimately happened was that out of that, um, several of our participants decided that they wanted to continue their journey with mindfulness and to become mindfulness teachers. Um, and mm -hmm. so we were fortunate enough to have Aon Alstrom, who's a, an incredible mindfulness teacher. Um, in fact, she's a great yoga teacher as well. And she, she works at, at Brown university and she was able to offer participation to, to two women from Chicago and two of our Parkland teachers in an eight week introduction to MBSR, mm -hmm. an online class. Yeah. And so we have many besides those people that came to the retreat, but now we have many, we have several individuals who are in this kind of survivor network that are going through the process of becoming MBSR certified, which is pretty incredible. And their whole entire intent is that they're going to be working specifically in this community because they 
want to be the people that they wish they had when they were going through this. Could you talk about, um, I mean, I can and I can't imagine what that scene and setting would have been like with the families coming together. I can imagine what you said about taking the mask off and letting down some and the comfort and the power of being around people that would have a sense of what is, I imagine, just unspeakable and and so confusing. And I just imagine when I think about it, the mix of emotions that must be there around from rage to grief. And, and I'm wondering what you just said about this intersection of people wanting to train in mindfulness and then, you know, having, I think, an understanding of trauma or the, the people that they wish that they had have had. Can you talk at all about what are you, what have you learned about either the particular needs around this community of those affected by gun violence and mass shootings, or even inside of your own teaching as well? Like what, what are you learning about trauma? What, what are your you know, top three lessons or just, I'm so curious what you've learned along this path. Oh, so much. I think the first thing that I've learned and that I've walked away with is that really there's no one size fits all. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes, um, as, as teachers, we sort of get really comfortable in the modality or the, the, you know, the, the types of teaching that we are used to teaching or that we've been trained in. And, and I think that what I've learned is that I have to be really flexible. I have to be really open as a teacher mm -hmm. and I have to be willing to be responsive. Meaning, you know, I think as teachers, we talk a lot, we talk at, and we need to spend a lot more time getting feedback, eliciting feedback and listening mm -hmm. so that we can modify and enhance and also know when we need to step back and say, I'm not the right person for this. Sure. Because I think that I tend to just, again, as a mother, as, as somebody who wants to fix the world, you know, make, make America kind again, <laughs> um, I want to tend to everybody, but I also have to be able to recognize that I'm not the right teacher for everybody. And I have to be able to, you know, create a network and be able to know when to step back and say, I have this other really incredible teacher for you, or this modality may not be for you. Here's, here's another option for you. So that, that was really one big takeaway for me. Another is really goes back to that, that word I just said, options. I think in this space, we need to give people more options. We need to be able to be more flexible in allowing the students to, um, in some ways, like dictate what they need. Like if we're really, really looking to be a part of their journey of healing and be facilitators, be these like healing doulas, if you will, mm -hmm. we need to be willing to, you know, help them like walk the path with them as opposed to just like lead them on, on a particular path because the path that we want to lead them down may not even be the path that we end up on. Yeah, this is, this has been a, this has been an ongoing conversation in the podcast and then also in the work that I'm interested in around trauma and mindfulness is 
this delicate and contextual and moment to moment and very dynamic process of knowing when to hold and contain and when to let go Mm -hmm. in our different roles and times. I I love how you just put it about times where, like you said, here's a well-trodden path that we know well, and there are like for very good reason, we're going to be providing this X, Y, Z instruction. And then other times I imagine there's been moments where you just, you just take a left turn and you're following yeah, and when to lead and when to follow. And just this, it's so dynamic and I'm so, I'm curious what, how do you, what are you learning there and how have you learned to navigate? It's the the listening that you spoke to. That's where I got curious is the people that seem most moved by the teachers or the facilitators that they have talk about often that they felt really listened to, but that there was also a container there at the same time. They felt like someone was holding them. So I'm always curious to ask people how they're holding that nuanced balance and and how you, how you're working that out. Hmm. Gosh, that's a really good question. That's one I'm in, honestly. I'm, you know, it's it's, yeah. for, it's, for, it's for it's for I don't have it figured out. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just I just I think there's I think a big part of it is like consistency, if that's even the right word to use. Like, I'm a really big proponent of consistently showing up for people. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's one thing to be a facilitator and to be a teacher that, you know, or you have like an experience or you go to a, you know, you have a conversation with somebody that's different, but when you're really doing this work with people and you're showing up week after week, like you really need to show up consistently. Right. You have to be, there's, there's like, I think for teachers, a really big responsibility to, to just fully be able to be there each time and to be committed to doing like grounding yourself in the right way, like doing the work, clearing out all of your stuff before you show up so that you can really become like that container for that person as opposed to, you know, kind of fitting something into your day. Cause we, we are busy. We have like, you know, we're doing podcasts and we're writing and we're teaching and we're, you know, then living our daily lives. And it's like, I feel like this work is so sacred. It can't just be sort of fit into the day. It has to be bookended by just a more traditional contemplative practice. And you can't just sort of end this work and then kind of move on again and go, go, go to the supermarket and go to your daily day as well. Like there's gotta be some sort of like a start and finish Mm -hmm. to the work. So I think showing up is really, really important. And I mean that in like a very real sense. I think the other thing is also, it's not just about listening to people. It's about giving people a sense of empowerment, empowering them. Because a lot of the individuals that we do this work with really feel like their power has been taken away from them. You know, they feel hopeless. They, they don't, they feel exactly the opposite. And I think that we have this opportunity and in a sense, this responsibility of like empowering them again, first by listening, but then also by being able to provide them with things that are, that are tangible mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. connecting them to other people that are going through the same thing is also really important because it validates their experience but then it validates the fact that these tools work. Yes. Yeah. From the time that I've known you and from 
the sort of the word on the street about your practice and teaching, I feel like those are some of the superpowers that I hear in you around <laughs> a real consistency of showing up, like you'd show up and you show up for a lot of people. And then this piece around empowerment that you're also, I don't have a sense of, you know, it's about Shelly up on stage. This is about you being a bridge to yeah. communities, to providing spaces, to actually allow people to connect and do the work. And then it makes me think about you and what you've been naming around, you know, getting back to earlier in the conversation, you're talking about self-care and seeing people burn out and then the number of people that you show up for and just how, how do you, can you, can you bring us in a little bit about your process and how do you continually show up as a, a mother, a partner, a teacher, an activist, all these different roles that you're in? What are the practices that help you stay in, stay connected to yourself? Um, I, I'm always just curious how people roll with this. Yeah. So, um, well, you know that oftentimes they say the shoemaker goes barefoot. <laughs> I hadn't heard that, but yeah, there it is. <laughs> But in this case, I will say that you can't really be an effective teacher and certainly you can't be a self-care activist if you're not tending to yourself as well. And certainly I wouldn't be able to continuously show up for people if I didn't tend to myself. So I'm a really big fan of writing things down and formalizing processes. So I have a formal self-care plan. And this is not what I was expecting you to say at all. <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love that you say you're formalizing. It's great. Please continue. Yeah. So I have a, a formal self-care plan. It's, um, it's like all it's written out and then I have an infographic version of it, which I, keep, <laughs> <laughs> which I keep, um, on my desk or next to my desk or, you know, just, just somewhere handy that I can kind of see it, reflect on it, uh, remind myself of it. Um, and then, it's also a great conversation piece because then people can actually um, point to it and say, hey, what's that? And then you can kind of share with them and bring them into the process. But um, so that's one part of the formalization is sort of being able to identify what are the self-care practices that I can immediately enact or plan to enact without having to rack my brain when I'm in a state of fatigue or, you know, things are just not really like all, all cylinders are running and I'm not, and then I have to add one more thing to the list of like, Oh, now I have to start thinking about what I'm going to do to like, or fit, you know, time into my schedule. But rather when I have that, that list, when I have that self-care plan and it's readily available, it's something that I could just easily look at and say, ah, I need to do this for myself or it's a reminder. But the more important mm -hmm. thing is that once you formalize a self-care plan, you get yourself and I have one, a self-care buddy. And actually, you can also have a community of care. So I have multiple buddies who form a community of care. And what you do is you share this self-care plan of yours, each one of us has one, with each other. And you have to talk about what your obstacles are. So, you know, one of the people in our community, for example, um, has small children. and She's a single mother. And so her obstacles to self-care you know, in general is that she never has time because she works full time. She comes home, she has to tend to two children. And so one of her obstacles is just being able to find some me time. So as a self-care community, we're able to help her identify what her obstacles are, but then more importantly, we're able to actually offer 
solutions to her obstacles by offering time to mm-hmm. babysit or taking her children for, you know, a few hours once a week or, you know, helping cook a couple meals a week for her um, and showing up with, um, you know, with dinner. So she, she doesn't have to do that, you know, and she can just focus on having some time with her children. So it's really about creating this, this community and, you know, if we're just formalizing the process, holding each other accountable, I think when we speak things, they're more likely to become reality. We speak them into reality. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the accountability with others. And I'm wondering, what do you say to people who say self-care sounds really indulgent or you know, if it sounds kind of bourgeois or if it's not something that I have the space or the time for, how do you respond just because it's an active, com- I, I see a lot of people grappling, you know, in this yeah. and saying, if I'm doing, tr- if I'm doing trauma work, I need to be purposely engaging in self-care, but then people are hurting. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I hear critiques of the industry and just wondering how you, how you respond to people that push back on it. What I always say to people who say that self-care is indulgent is that they have the wrong understanding of what self-care is. They're listening to what society and what the media is telling them self-care is. They're looking at hashtag self-care and figuring out through that what self-care is. And all of those things is not what it is. Having a latte and going to the spa and getting a manicure and buying a new handbag and going on retreat in Tulum is not what I'm talking about when I talk about self-care. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all those things are lovely and they're nice and they're wonderful and, you know, but that's not what self-care is. Self-care doesn't cost any money. Self-care is not something that's indulgent because it's self-care is like as important as breathing. We can't exist without breathing. And self-care essentially is just a way to help us breathe easier. It's a reset button. It's a way for us to fully show up. We talk about showing up. And it's a way for us to fully show up as often as we can for ourselves and for others. Mm-hmm. And so when people, you know, when people say, well, I don't have time, you know, I don't have time. Well, okay, then let's get a self-care plan in place and let's identify what those obstacles are that are causing you not to have time. Maybe it's legitimate. Maybe you don't have time. But let's figure out how we can make it so that you have time. What can we take off of your plate? What can our community of care, how can we help each other? I think oftentimes when we talk about self-care, the word, you know, the word self is in there. And so it can be really isolating, you know, the word self just inherently implies that it's a pursuit of one. And that's pretty lonely. Mm -hmm. But it's not. It's really not self-care. We really need to start changing the language to communities of care Mm. because I think it makes it more, uh, it makes it a lot less daunting and it makes it more realistic and it, I think, will make it more impactful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I I hear you talking about self-care as growing the capacity to turn towards difficulty, not just to feel better. Um, Or that's partly how I'm hearing what you're saying and this, what you said about showing up. Yeah. This is possibility of showing up. And you strike me as uh, someone who a big part of what you're offering to others is that through mindfulness practice, 
through this 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 weekly meditation that you have see you on the sand that it's really cultivating the strength to be with what's difficult to be with what's challenging yeah and i imagine you have I just imagine you've had a lot of experiences over the years now of seeing either in your own life or people, the students that you're working with or people in the community who are taking the practice and really turning towards what's challenging, which is what mm -hmm. I get most excited about inside of this conversation is both safe practice and also transformative that it's, it's actually helping people change their lives and then change their communities and the world around yes, them. Yes. Do, do, do any stories come to mind here of of people that you've seen? I just I'm so touched by the the, the bravery and the courage of people mm -hmm. that you've worked with, who said I'm not going to turn the other way. I'm actually turning towards this right now. Yeah. And with with mindfulness, like taking some of that practice and saying, all right, like I'm I'm up for this. And here, is there any stories either in your own life or people that you've seen that are able to transform themselves and also what's happening around them? Sure. I mean, well, one of the individuals that I work with and that I've actually met through this platform of, of, of gun violence is a, a gentleman by the name of Albert Campbell. And Albert was incarcerated, if I'm not mistaken, I think for 26 years. And he was the last pardon um, before President Obama left office as part of uh, President Obama's clemency project. And so Albert's been out of prison for two years. And I met Albert by showing up at a hunger strike in Liberty City. Mm -hmm. And Liberty City mm -hmm. is a really just an underserved, very impoverished area of uh, where there's gun violence on a daily basis on the streets in Miami. Mm -hmm. And um, Albert became part of a movement really called the Hunger Nine, which was organized by an organization called the Circle of Brotherhood in Liberty City. And so these gentlemen, these nine gentlemen, uh, including Albert, went on a hunger strike for 21 days. Wow to bring and call attention to the violence, the gun violence that was happening every single day on the streets in Liberty City. And like, nobody cares because it's not, it's not sexy. It's not 15 minutes of fame. It's not um, tragic enough. Like, I'm not really sure, you know, at this point what qualifies for, for news and the media these days, but certainly they were not really getting any type of attention, but they are going through the same type of grief and trauma that um, people in um, places that are being covered by the news um, were going mm -hmm. through. Mm -hmm. And so I met Albert in March and um, I met actually the entire circle of brotherhood in March, but Albert and I had a really unique connection and I sat with him on, he was sitting on his cot and I sat on the floor next to him and I just held his hand, gazed in his eyes, and we had an intense, intense conversation in that first meeting. And I, before I left Albert, I, I, I don't even, you know, know what was in me, but I said this, you know, I looked at him and I said, I will never abandon you. And I will, I promise you that I will bring these practices that we are teaching in other communities to your community. And I think that you are going to make a really powerful teacher. And he and I just both were crying. We were looking at each other and he probably thought, you know, we laugh about it now, but I always say like, you probably thought I was like this 
because like, t- I'm, I'm kind of tiny in stature, you know, I, well, I'm not kind of, I am, I'm five foot two white Jewish girl who's like shows up in Liberty City. And I'm saying this to him and he was, you know, I think to some degrees, he admits a little bit of a skeptic. And what I'll say is that, you know, Albert's been to all of all of these uh, incredible workshops and retreats, and he's going to actually he's going to become a search inside yourself teacher. And we're going to be modifying hopefully some of that curriculum. You know, this is something that I really commend Rich for being at the forefront of this, but we're going to be modifying. Rich from is Rich. Just so people really don't know. Rich Fernandez, uh-huh. the CEO from Search Inside Yourself uh-huh. from Silly, mm-hmm. commend him for, you know, for coming down here and like just, you know, doing this work here with me in the trenches. But Albert, you know, is somebody that recognized, I think, when he left prison that, you know, he was still in prison. And he realized that in order to really become free, he had to do some inner work. And to um, talk about his experiences and be, um, if he really wanted to help people, he had to be able to go inner, but then also like talk about what he had experienced and talk about things that maybe um, he isn't proud of, things that he's embarrassed about um, and things that um, could potentially save somebody else. So I think mm-hmm. when I look at Albert, you know, in that kind of a story, and I look at so many other people in my community, people that have had, you know, cancer, people that have, you know, had terminal illness or just Ill- just chronic illnesses, people who have gone through so many different things. Every person that we know, every person that we've run into, every person has their own story and their own degree of trauma. Right. And you should never compare trauma because what one person's trauma is is completely different from somebody else's. Mm -hmm. But the idea is that I think one of the biggest gifts that I received and that I am now able to give to other people is the ability to um, just talk about things in an open way and create like this platform and a forum for people to be able to share their experiences and to bring things to light without ju- knowing that I won't be judged, knowing that when people share, we will not judge them. And in through this vulnerability, through this willingness to share our stories and our traumas and things that we're not proud of and things that scare us and, and, and maybe even take us back to a place that we don't want to go to, what, what we're able to actually do is in some sense, not just heal ourselves, but allow others, again, like that teacher said, give people permission to heal. You know, one of the things that Mrs. Ivy Seamus once told me, and Ivy Seamus is a teacher from Parkland, she was a Holocaust um, studies teacher, said that there was a Holocaust survivor that came to her classroom once and spoke to um, her students. And he said to them that pain should never be wasted. Hmm. And that's why he's there talking to them about his experiences. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I really, you know, that's a phrase that I just really took to heart. And I feel like any type of pain that we've had in our life should never be wasted. Mm-hmm. And if we can share that pain with other people, we can actually, through that pain, create connection and create love and create, you know, kindness and like kind of weave this tapestry that looks a lot more like 
a world that we want to be living in. And it seems to me that the pain that we can see in others and identify with is actually that glue that holds this tapestry Mm. together. That's powerful. And thanks, sir. I appreciate what you named earlier about, I'm sorry, I forgot his name, but the the man that you were speaking. Albert Campbell. Albert, the, uh, the skepticism that you said, where he's mm-hmm. like, who's this, who's this person? <laughs> the, the danger of, you know, folks saying, I think there's a useful discussion to have about the ways that yeah. at times mindfulness often taught by people in positions of more privilege can be, can become this project or people become saviors. And, yeah. and then, and then hearing what you said about leaving people in choice and then Albert being a chosen leader in his own community. Yes. And, and being choice, you know what I'm saying? Like that's yeah. that to me is where this can be uh, inside of the shared humanity. There's also people's different experiences, yes, um, and the communities they speak to, and it and it makes me I feel like as a place maybe we could close. Is could you? I want to I want to just open up space for you to talk about your hopes and visions for the years to come. I mean, we're we're in such a particular historical moment right now here in the U.S. I mean, in the world. And here you are doing such powerful work in different communities and you know, bringing together trauma-informed work with mindfulness. And, and I'm wondering if you could just talk about, you know, it's a year, three, five out from now. Mm. What are you hoping to see and what are visions or hopes that you have for the, the horizon? Wow. Oh. Well, that's a big, it's a big, it's a yeah. big question. I but, mean, I have yeah. like really visions of like unicorns and rainbows and ponies and things <laughs> like that, but, <laughs> but in a realistic sense, <laughs> if we're talking about like realistic visions, um, for me, it's really, it goes back again to empowering people and building capacity. It goes back mm. to the fact that I really truly believe that in this space, in this mindfulness space that we're in, there's two really important things that I always tell communities when I go in right away. Like when I go in to speak to like, you know, the mayor of so-and-so whose community just experienced a trauma or if it's, you know, just people who are, are just, you know, experiencing tremendous overwhelm from, from what's been going on, you know, in their communities is that I always set the premise when I walk in and I say, okay, there's two things I need to tell you. The first thing is, is there is no catch. And I say that because I don't want people to think that either I'm trying to get something out of this or, you know, I'm going to try to sell them on something or I'm going to tell them all this about this fabulous program or, or all these teachers that we're going to be bringing in and then tell them, you know, and here's the cost of it or no, there's just, there's no catch. So I don't want people to enter into a conversation thinking that I'm going to try to sell them on something. So I take that off the table. And the second really important thing is there's no room for ego in this work. There's Mm. no room for ego in this work. And I remind teachers of that all the time, all the time, because I think what oftentimes happens is that people really kind of make this work about like themselves or maybe they get into it for the right reasons, but then it's, they kind of momentarily forget really what the original reasons are that they got into the work, you know? Um, 
because there can be opportunities that are like really alluring, you know, and that can personally um, help them in their own lives with their own, you know, desires and, and, and aspirations. But that's totally not what this is about, you know, so we kind of have to keep um, calling ourselves out and making sure that we're, we're doing this work for the right reasons and that there is no ego involved, that it's really about helping others. So that, those are the first things. My hope is, is that we can then start building capacity and recognize, similar to what you said about, you know, my exchange with Albert and my work, even in places like in South Side of Chicago, you know, like we don't come in and do, you know, a practice and pretend like we are this like, you know, savior that's coming in on a white horse and um, here we are and we have all the answers and we're going to save you. No. We're here to empower you. We're here to identify individuals that are ready to become teachers in your community that um, would like to go on this journey inward so that they can then um, be teachers in their own right and help to empower others in their community and pay it forward. And so it's like really this like sort of multi-level marketing, if you will, this, this, this pyramid um, where it just starts with one person in every community. And then that person empowers other people who empower other people, empower other people. And I think if we can, my hope is that we can build enough capacity in these communities that have experienced either a traumatic event or have something that father Flaherty in, uh, um, from uh, the Catholic Church, St. Sabina in South Side of Chicago calls present traumatic stress disorder. Because mm. in communities like that, there is mm -hmm. no post-traumatic stress disorder. It's like, it's just ongoing, right? Yeah. And if we can just continue to build capacity and train the trainers and understand that because there's no ego, we're okay with sitting behind the curtain taking a back seat, not being on stage, just being there in a capacity to support, then I think really beautiful things will start to emerge naturally. You know, like we're, we're going to be planting these seeds all around the country. We are, we already are. And those seeds, if we are just in a position where we feel like as teachers, we are here to just nurture, mm. we're here to nurture, then those trees will eventually bear these beautiful fruits. And I just think at that point, you know, an entire cultural shift can begin to occur. And hopefully the world that we really want to be like living in becomes a reality. It's a kinder, gentler place. Yeah. Thanks, Shelly. That's awesome. I really appreciate your, your visions and the seeds that you're planting and your work. Thanks for all the work that you're doing. And thank you. Is there anything anything else that you'd want people to know about? Like, how can they get in? How can they get in touch with you, or just anything else that you'd uh, want to share here? Sure. So, I will share that we are doing another healing through love survivor uh, retreat um, this year. As I mentioned, it's uh, from August seventh through the eleventh at Garrison and in New York. And, um, we are going to be raising funds for that and also, uh, looking for additional faculty members and teachers. So if anybody listening to this podcast is called 
to uh, to do this work, um, they can get in touch with me through my website and um, and that's seeyouonthesand.com, S-E-E-Y-O-U on the sand.com. Perfect. And if anyone's in Florida, can they come to your weekly oh, sitting yeah. group on the sand? <laughs> yeah, We didn't definitely. get to talk about that. But this is the first picture that I ever saw of you was, uh, you know, you with 500 or more with five people on a beach sitting. Yeah. And I thought, who is this? Who is this person? <laughs> so do you mind just plugging uh, yeah, to sure. see you on the sand or letting people know what it is? Yeah. So see you on the sand is a community that started actually uh, with 12 of my friends on the beach. Uh, I just decided one day that I was going to go teach on the beach and <laughs> and 12 of my friends showed up. and then. That was in November of 2015, and now we have a community of over 15,000 people who have meditated with us. And we meet 40 out of 52 Sundays a year on the beaches of Hollywood, Florida, uh, which is in Broward County, not far from Fort Lauderdale. And it starts at 8:30 in the morning, and it's you know it's a perfect, perfect way and a perfect place to start your week. And to, you know, set, set your intention and just ground yourself and sort of carry yourself into, into a beautiful, a beautiful week ahead. And so um, anybody that wants to join, it's free. It's open to the public. I, all of the like workshops and programs that I do are always free. There's always a free component just because I believe that there should never be any barriers to entry. And um, having it at the beach is a really important part of that because I think there's no stigma with going to the beach. So people just show up, you know? Yeah. And my website has all the information under the events tab. So I try to keep it updated, you know, four or five weeks ahead of time. So if you're in the area, if you're in South Florida, you should make the drive on a Sunday morning and uh, you won't be let down. You will definitely yeah. have an experience like you've never had before and meet some of the most interesting people that all congregate and are just so loving and wonderful. Mm, that's great. If I'm ever out there, I'm I'm getting down there for sure. My grandma's <laughs> not too far away. So definitely. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Shelly. I'm sure that we'll be doing we'll be having lots of overlap in the in the years to come. But I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. Thanks again for all your work and I really appreciate this platform. Thanks. That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening, and thanks also to Shelly for this conversation. Also, want to give a shout out to everyone who's doing such powerful organizing work around gun violence in the U.S. and abroad, um, and all the students at Parkland who have just been um, such leaders inside of this work. If you have any comments on this episode, or there are people that you'd like us to talk to, or topics you want us to cover please feel free to um, reach out where it's support at davidtrelevin.com. Mm-hmm.